Lord. My shepherd strong, I shall not want you. to begin this morning on Palm Sunday by reading from Psalm 131. And it says, My heart is not proud, O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Well, this morning, I want, on Palm Sunday, I want to, to use some poetry, the, the poem I just read you, Psalm 131, and I want to use it to reflect on the events of Palm Sunday and the characters of Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and he's greeted by that jubilant, celebratory crowd. But before we look at this ancient poem, I'd like to look at another ancient poem, even older than Psalm 131. In fact, it's considered the first great work of literature. It's from the Epic of Gilgamesh, and uh, it's about a Sumerian king. And it says this, the king gained complete knowledge. He found out what was secret and uncovered what was hidden. He brought back a tale of times before the flood. He was superior to other kings, a warrior lord of great stature who opened up passes in the mountains, who crossed the ocean, the broad seas, as far as the sunrise. There is no one among the kings of teeming humanity that can compare with him. Wow. Even though this is written thousands of years ago, millennia ago, and it's, and it's written uh, about no mere mortal but a Sumerian king, no less, going on God, because they all became gods eventually back then. Even though it's written in, in this otherworldly atmosphere, this other era, this other uh, ethereal time, it feels like, the amazing thing is, is that people like you, people like me, can actually understand what is going on here? We understand what these biographers are up to. We don't have kings, but we have presidents. And the same people who sell us toothpaste and the same people who sell us cars are the same people who sell us the presidency. And what are they selling us? They're selling us a strong leader, a smart leader, an I-can-get-things-done leader. They had kings, we have presidents. But we don't have to be a president or a king to understand what's going on here because, of course, we understand perfectly well about carefully curating our own publicity with those carefully edited snippets of our lives and those nicely touched up photos right, that, that we put out there. And if I'm, if I'm smart, 
I don't just use social media to think out loud, I can actually make it very clear that my life is far more glamorous and exciting than your sad and sorry existence. It's, it's nice that we do this to each other, isn't it? Um, or, or perhaps, perhaps you've experienced it this other way. You, you, you've had a friend or you have gone on one of these dating apps and you've gone on the date and it turns out that the date is not half as well adjusted or half as funny or half as really, really, really good looking as their profile had made them out to be. We understand spin. And so we understand what these biographers, these historians, these poets, these publicists are up to. My question this morning is, what is this guy doing? Here in Psalm 131, what, what, what are they doing here? I don't get this. I'm, I'm, there's a couple of things. I want to start out by pointing out two really odd features about Psalm 131. Um, and the, the first one is this. It, it says here that this is a psalm of King David. It's attributed to King David. It says it's a psalm of David. Now, whether King David actually wrote Psalm 131 or not, I don't know. I don't think the answer to that question. Did, did, he, was it, did he write it himself or was it attributed to King David? you know, um, years down the road, sort of uh, as an editorial decision. I don't know the answer to that question, but it seems that the collective tradition has been happy to say this psalm, this poem, Psalm 131, belongs to King David, and that should strike us as a little odd. Because imagine these two presidential candidates side by side. First candidate, candidate A, responsibility, responsibly cut national debt, create new jobs, it's going to create a healthcare system that works for everyone, care for the environment, they're going to fight racism, they're going to improve international relations, and on and on it goes. What a wonderful candidate. Uh, and then compare this to candidate B. I am like a weaned child with a mother, not concerning myself with matters too far too great for me. Which candidate do we vote for? When you go to the booth, which, who are you going to vote for? And, and you may say, well, wait a second, Stephen, you're confused. This is a political campaign, and this is poetry, and you're confusing these things. This is not a political campaign. Okay, let's pretend the poetry isn't political in any sense. Uh, but but, but let's, the fact is, these kinds of poems that we just read in Psalm 131 would not make it into the annals of the kings of Samaria. Heck, it wouldn't even make it onto a social media account. This is not how you present yourself, right? You go out there tomorrow and post something like this and present yourself to the world. We don't do this. This is not how we present ourselves. And so you would think that the king's publicists would have quietly and carefully dropped this from the record. But they don't. That's the first odd thing, right? The second odd thing has to do with the, the, the third verse. It's a very short psalm, this, isn't it? It's the, it's the very last verse. Um, and essentially what we discover in that last verse is that this psalm is inviting the entire nation this psalm is inviting the entire nation of Israel, the whole entire country of Israel, to, to become like this wean child, not considering themselves with something too great for them. And so it turns out that this is not just about the king's personal identity, but this is about national identity. The whole nation is supposed to take up this posture the whole nation of Israel. He's inviting them all to, to enter into this way of being, this mode of existence. Now, of course, I, I hope you're getting a sense of, of um, this is what he's doing when, when he says, 
O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. That's the last verse. When he says that, he's saying, look, I hope in the Lord in this way, like this weaned child, and I'm inviting you to do the same. This is his invitation. Become like me, right? So I hope you're getting a sense of the oddness of this psalm. This is about the king's identity, and this is about national identity. And this is odd, because this is not how Sumerians or Americans would identify nationally, right? This is not how we present ourselves. Okay, so that's some of the context. Let's look at the, some more of the offending content. Um, it starts out by saying, O oh Lord, my heart is not proud, nor do I have a haughty look. I do not have great aspirations or concern myself with things that are beyond me. Or another translation says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. It's almost as if the psalmist is associating haughtiness, pride, arrogance, that kind of posture, with the pursuit of knowledge and understanding. And then he goes on to say this, Indeed, I am composed and quiet like a young child carried by its mother. I am content like the young child I carry so he not only appears to slight the, the questioning and inquiring mind, but he seems to be romanticizing a little bit, a state of blissful ignorance. We may want to catalog this with that very, very famous verse in Matthew uh, where Jesus says, everyone knows this, or a lot of people would have heard this, unless you become like one of these little children, like one of these little ones, you cannot enter the kingdom of God interesting is 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 it that king david and jesus are, are they suggesting that we take on this posture of a child because it is the position of ignorant bliss that is the path of the true and the faithful and the pious is is, is that what jesus and david are inviting us to i don't think so um, partly because the analogy doesn't work very well, does it? Children are always asking questions. They're always asking why. Why, mum? Why, dad? But why? Right? Kids, are, especially when you don't want them to, kids are always asking why. So, so if Jesus and David are suggesting that, you know, they want to suppress this inquiring, questioning, pursuit of knowledge and understanding and the questioning, inquiring mind, then a child, of course, is the, exactly the wrong analogy to make. So, so pick another, make another uh, an analogy. This, this one doesn't really work. In fact, I think, here's what I think. I think that what Jesus would actually encourage us to keep on questioning, keep on inquiring, because you know what you get when you ask, uh, work hard to answer one question. And some of you are working very hard to, to answer one question, right? You know what the reward is? Three more questions. That's, the, that's how this works. You answer one question, you get three more questions. And, and so I think Jesus would say, no, keep on asking these questions, keep on having this inquiring mind, because that is how you have the posture of a child. The problem is actually the other way around. The problem is when we stop inquiring and stop asking, because when you have no more questions and then you have no more curiosity, you have all the answers, you've arrived, you become the final authority and you become the God in control. And that's the place where I would like to join the events of Palm Sunday.
when Jesus came riding in to Jerusalem that day, the crowds were crying, Hosanna to the son of David. So I think it's appropriate that we've started out reflecting on a psalm of David, King David, because the crowds, right, were making that connection that day between King David and King Jesus. It's Hosanna to the King of David, they cried. In a book called The Last Week, authors John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg explain that there were actually two dramatic processions that would have entered Jerusalem at roughly the same time in anticipation of the crowds gathering for the Passover feast. So which one do we want to see today? On this side of town, uh, you will see Pilate, the governor, leading his military procession from his base in Caesarea Maritima with all the pomp and pageantry and military might of Rome on display. Their mission was to reinforce the garrison in Jerusalem. A clear statement had to be made to the throngs assembling for the Passover celebration. This is Caesar's world. Caesar's in charge here. Behold his authority, his power, his glory, his strength. Do not make a wrong step. From the opposite direction, coming from the Mount of Olives, if we go over to that side of town, we will see Jesus and his followers approaching the city. Pilate was on a war horse. Jesus was on a donkey, and not just a donkey, but a colt, the foal of a donkey. His feet may have been touching the ground, in other words, as he rode in on this animal. One procession, Pilate's was a triumphal entry. Jesus' entry, well, I don't know, it's called a triumphal entry, right? And if you go into your Bible, there's a little heading there, it says triumphal entry. I don't know, it seems a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, don't you think? Especially in that context, maybe? Pilate's procession embodied the power, the glory, the strength of the empire, the power, the glory, the strength of Caesar, who claimed to be the Son of God, the Savior, the world's true Lord. And Jesus rode in gentle and humble on a donkey, Zechariah says. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I think one of the, the problems with becoming so familiar with these passages, and we do become familiar with them. If you, if you hang around in church circles for any length of time, you'll know that this is one of those passages which we visit every single year at the same time, right, beginning of Holy Week. And, you know, uh, sometimes we come back to it uh, more often than that, even, in, for, in, the, in the point of the year. So they become very familiar. And one of the problems with becoming really familiar with these kinds of passages is we can start to do what they call over-identification. We over-identify with the protagonist, right? And in this case, the protagonist is, is Jesus. And so we over-identify with Jesus. And, and this is how I read, not just this passage, but I often read the New Testament this way. I, I, I look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, and I think I'd never be like them. They're all the time trying to trap Jesus, right? Get him in some political trap so they can get him executed. And, and, then, and then, of course, you, you, you come across Pilate, and, and holy, what he's going to do is he's going to call. He's going to say, bring me a bowl of water, and he's going to wash his hands as a symbolic act of saying, this has nothing to do with me. You want to kill this, you want to have him executed, we'll crucify him for you, but this is your decision, not mine. I wash my hands of the whole affair. 
as if that made him not responsible, right? And, and, and so I, I think to myself, I would never wash my hands of this whole affair. I would take responsibility. I understand who Jesus is, right? I'm on his, I'm on his side. That we, so we jump to Jesus' side. We over-identify with Jesus. And so if someone comes to me and, and says, hey, look, here's two, I've got tickets to both parades, the governor's parade, Pontius Pilate, or I've got the, the tickets to go see Jesus coming in, front row seats, which one do you want? Of course, I want to take the ones to go and see Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Of course. But would I? I don't know. Hindsight is everything, as they say. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, as they say. Last year, I, I mentioned a, a podcast which um, was documenting the rise and fall of Mars Hill, which many of you were listening to. Mars Hill was a huge uh, mega church up in Seattle, um, and, and they had thousands, I think it was like 15,000, all these satellite congregations, and then suddenly it just disappeared, shut down overnight. Um, and in fact, 2013, we said, was their most successful year ever, by far, They had, in terms of success being measured by the number of people flooding the place and filling the seats, right? They were filled to overflowing, bursting at the seams, and then, so that's 2013, the next year, 2014, gone, done, the whole thing over with. And uh, we, we said that the, 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 what went wrong there had, had absolutely nothing to do with a, a sort of a sexual scandal, which is sometimes the case. It had nothing to do with money mismanagement, which is often the case. These things happen. Nothing to do with it. That's not what went, went down. What it had to do with was the relationship to power and glory and strength and authority and self-promotion. All the stuff we've been talking about this morning. What I didn't say last year, and I think this is important, I don't think it's fair to blame Mark Driscoll, the pastor, the leader, and that's not what the podcast was trying to do. Because, of course, as a leader, he appears in the context of a very specific church culture, which admires and elevates and offers adulation, not in spite of, the amazing thing is not in spite of, but sometimes because of these displays of power and strength and glory and authoritarianism mistaken for authority. I've, I've had times over the last few years where friends uh, have said to me, um, look, you, you need to use your position as the pastor on, on certain moral issues, you just need to lay down the law, and you need to tell people, this is how it is. You, this, is this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be. This is the law on this. Uh, and, and, and I understand. I understand. It was from some younger, younger friends. And I totally understand why they would say that. And believe me, it, when I was a younger man, I've been doing this for a long time now, when I was a younger man, I used to do that kind of thing. I used to do it in, sometimes in pastoral counseling situations, nightmare, and I would do it in, from the pulpit, possibly even worse. I don't know which is worse, right? And I'll tell you the reason why I used to do that, okay? The reason why I used to do it is because it does have a certain power, and it has a certain kind of effectiveness. It, 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 it works. It works until it doesn't, right? It's effective until it's no longer effective, and, and this sort of thing is not going to sustain us over the long haul. I say I would go see Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but I think I'd be way more impressed with Pilate and Caesar 
the weapons, the armor, the glitz, the glamour, the strength, the power, the authority. If you could get front row seats to that, much more impressive show. Let's be honest. And so after listening to that podcast, uh, one, one friend's conclusion was not, oh, what a terrible, what an awful person that Mark Driscoll is. Oh, what a terrible leader, what an awful pastor. Because he said that that wasn't the point of the podcast. What she asked the more reflective question, and I'm really grateful she asked this question. The question she asked was, how am I contributing to creating this kind of culture? In, in what ways have I elevated and, and, and adulated and, 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 and admired the wrong things? Right? In what ways have I contributed? And that's the question that I'd like to, to leave us with this morning. In, in what ways do we contribute to, to that kind of culture? Another way of asking this, this question is, in what ways do I still resonate so much more with the publicist for, for the Sumerian king than I do for King David's publicist? Right? Another way of asking it is, is, in what ways do I still resonate far more with Pilate's procession than I do with Jesus' triumphal entry? If someone comes to me and says, I've got tickets, front row seats to both of these, which one am I going to really pick? It's an important question for us to ask because it will determine the kind of culture that we grow here. Just getting started again here, right? So right from the beginning, if we can answer this question seriously, have some convictions about this. this. This will be worked into the DNA of our congregation and, and it will determine what, what we grow into. So let's carry that question into, into Holy Week. I, I want to make this a little bit more practical, so let me, let me sort of turn the telescope around, look at it from the other end, okay? We're going to look at it from the other end. Who are the people in your life who cannot offer you power, prestige, and position, who can't help you with your little New York networking game, right, and getting connected, right, who can't help you climb the ladder and get ahead, who are the people in your life who can't do that because they have no power, prestige, and position, so they can't offer you any, and, and actually they're, they're working these dead-end jobs, and, and as far as New York City is concerned, they're at the bottom of the rung, at the bottom of the heap, that they, they feel, as one friend texted this week, we feel, uh, we feel like nobodies feel like nobody's. Heartbreaking to even have someone say that. So who are those people, those nobodies, who all they can offer you is genuine love and friendship? And all you can offer them right back is genuine love and friendship. Let's carry that question with us into Holy Week. The glitz, the glamour, the strength, the power, prestige and position on the one hand. Humility, meekness, gentleness, compassion, mercy and love on the other. These things have not always been seen as virtues. Um, as uh, one professor of Greek studies points out, whenever you're reading a, a historical novel set in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, and you find that the hero in the novel, the protagonist, is being held up to the standards of love and mercy, compassion and humility, you know at that moment that you're not reading a very authentic historical novel set in an authentic Greek, ancient Greece and an authentic Rome. 
<laughs> because those were not the values, those were not seen as virtues back then. What you're reading is a Christianized version of Greece and a Christianized version of Rome because it was Jesus who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey that day and in that very act, symbolic act, he reevaluates humanity's values. Are all of our values, your values, my values, and he elevates humility, and he elevates gentleness, and he elevates compassion, and mercy, and love. This Palm Sunday and this Holy Week, as familiar as we might be with this story, can we invite Jesus? Can we let Jesus reevaluate our entire system of values again, turning them once more on their head? Mm-hmm.